Welcome to The God Solution, a place where we discuss solid evidence for the Christian faith and interviews with leading Christian apologists. Each week, you'll be encouraged in your faith and equipped to defend it and share it in your daily life. You can find out more about The God Solution at godsolutionshow.com. Now, here's your host, Nate Herbst. Welcome to The God Solution Show, where we discuss answers to humanity's questions about God and God's answers for humanity's questions. I'm Nate Herbst, and I'm thrilled that you're tuned back in. While I hope you didn't miss last week's interview with Dr. Gary Habermas, world-renowned expert on the evidence for the resurrection. If you did miss it, you can go to godsolutionshow.com and get that interview under the Past Shows tab. Today we're going to be picking up with the second part of that interview, and next week we will conclude on Easter with the third part of the interview with Dr. Habermas on the evidence for the resurrection. We're also going to get into a few other topics with him, too, like near-death experiences. He's an expert in that field, and a lot of different fields that kind of revolve around the historical evidence for Jesus, life after death, the historical evidence for the resurrection, etc. So we'll touch on some of those other topics as well. But anyway, as we look forward to Easter, I'm excited that Habermas is on the show with us, and I hope that you enjoyed the show last week, and I hope that you're excited to hear more this week. If you don't remember about Dr. Habermas, or maybe you missed the show, I'll tell you a little bit about him. He is, like I said, considered the expert on the evidence for the resurrection. He's debated the evidence for the resurrection with skeptics and critics. He's written numerous books on this topic. He's written over 40 books in general. Many of those dealt with the evidence for the resurrection and the evidence for Jesus Christ, things like that. He is an expert in this field, and it is an incredible privilege that we get to have him on the show. He's also the chair of the philosophy department at Liberty University. He's an incredible guy. He is a godly man. He is a humble man, and it is a real privilege to have him here on The God Solution. You can find out more about Dr. Habermas at GaryHabermas.com. Well, anyway, we're going to pick up with our interview talking about early testimony about the resurrection. Enjoy the second part of this interview. So let's talk about that early testimony. I know in the past, once when you were on the show, you talked about this passage, this creed in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 8, and you talked about how early that actually goes. Could you elaborate a little bit on that? Sure. Uh, Paul says in verse 3, as he says three times in the book of 1 Corinthians, by the way, he says twice, virtually the exact same words. He said, I gave you what I was given. And the first time is 1 Corinthians 11 on the famous communion passage where I gave you what I was given from the Lord, how that, you know, Jesus was, the same night Jesus was betrayed, took bread, and so on. The second time he says that is 1 Corinthians 15, the passage we're talking about. And then a third time in 1 Corinthians, he refers to the traditions that the elders had passed down in the church, the first apostles and going down to others. He talks about their traditions. Now, what you get from these three texts is that in the early church, there were teachings. I mean, this is kind of like one of those duh things. If there weren't teachings passed down, how could there ever have been a church? Things have Mm -hmm. to be passed down in any belief system. So Paul is basically saying, people had this before I had it. I was a Johnny-come-lately. In fact, he uh, when he says, I was the, the least of all the apostles and so on, and 1 Corinthians 15.8, he uses a Greek word that means um, that he was aborted or miscarried. 
it's a word indicating that he, you know, came to the show kind of late. And according to scholars, Paul was converted between one and three years after the cross. So during that time, during that little hiatus from the cross to Paul's conversion, there were a lot of traditions passed around. I mean, after all, if you're going to tell people, here's what we're about and do you want to believe, there's got to be some content. And Paul repeats those. And he says in verse 3, very simple in English, but it's profound in terms of research. I gave you what I was given. I passed on to you what I was told when I came to Christ. And then he introduces this early creed. Critics believe that this material probably goes back, this is the consensus New Testament position, that this material goes back to when Paul went to Jerusalem, Galatians chapter 1, verses uh, 18 and following. He says, I came to Christ. Okay, if that's one to three years, let's just put it in an average. Let's say it's plus two. And then he says, three years later, I went up to Jerusalem. So two plus three, five. If we date the uh, cross from 30, some data from 33, but if we date the, the cross from 30, just to get some figures on the, on the board here, if the cross is 30, Paul's conversion is 32, and his trip to Jerusalem is three years later, 35, that's probably when Paul received this material from the two apostles that he stayed with for 15 days, Peter and James, the brother of Jesus. So Paul received this, the material about five years later. Um, now, as I tell my uh, audiences when I'm lecturing on this, we, we're, we're too tempted to stop right there and go, oh, well, then it's five years later. No, that's when Paul received this material. If Peter and James gave it to him, guess what? They had it before he had it. Oh, well, now we've got to back up in between the zero and, and five, or between the 30 and 35, if you prefer. But we have to back up less than five years, because uh, James, Peter, and others had it before Paul had it. And then the this takes a long time to explain, but briefly, there are dozens of these little creedal texts in the New Testament. And many times they're introduced by a statement, like, here's a trustworthy saying, something like that. And these little texts are, they have a cadence to them. Like uh, the one in First Corinthians 15 is often thought to have two stanzas. And basically it would read like, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And there's a cadence, so you can memorize it. And the importance of that is that, according to New Testament scholars today, a high percentage of Jesus' listeners were illiterate. So, if you want to teach them what Christianity is about, and they can't read, you teach them these little sayings. Or, Philippians 2 may be a hymn, you teach them a song. And, you know, we can remember little ditties that we sang in Sunday school when we were little kids. You know, Jesus loved me this and somebody else complete it, and they'll say, I know, for the Bible tells me so. And we remember all that. Well, that's exactly how these creeds work. Um, you know, uh, famous hymns that we sing, we know the words, and you can be illiterate and sing them. Well, so now you've got another stage there. Paul gets it at plus five. They had it before Paul had it. And it takes a while to put these, these teachings in a da-da-da-da-da-da-da format so we're basically all the way back to the cross. 
And Bargerman himself says that this and other creedal passages in the New Testament date from one to two years after the cross. In fact, he's, here's the way he says it. He says this material is pre-Pauline. Pre-Pauline means before Paul's conversion. If Paul's conversion is plus two, then this is in the zero to plus two slot. That's when this is dated. And that's very, very common. I mean, the Jesus Seminar, who are, you know, like I said, reject 80 to 90 percent of the red-letter words of Jesus, as a group, they decided that this material in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and following was pre-Pauline, therefore predates Paul's conversion. It's, it's an extremely powerful and useful conclusion. Uh, maybe the most important data we have in, in our use of apologetics. Help us understand why and, and how we can trust these early eyewitnesses. You know, coming from a, a very modern perspective, no one, no one took an iPhone video, <laughs> you know, no one wrote it sure. down on a database and had it backed up on a, you know, a computer. You know, you said most of these people were illiterate. You know, were they just fooled? Were they, you know, how can we trust these early eyewitnesses? Well, now, that's a great question. Bart Ehrman's next book, and I think it's due out here in a month or two, but Bart Ehrman's next book is going to go after exactly what you're talking about. It's going to go after these early eyewitness-type statements, and it's going to cite information from, I imagine, psychology and sociology and talk about how people can carry on traditions. And There's probably a lot of, he's going to have some examples of gross misremembrance and gross error being passed on, and there, I'm just guessing, but, you know, probably many cases where I am sure I was at an event in the 1960s, and I wasn't there, <laughs> but my best friend told me about it so many times that I have a memory as if I were sitting there with him, and I was never there. So, I think he's going to make this point that you made, that people misremember. Now, the response to that, there's a lot of responses, but... Um, a book was written a few years ago by uh, as prominent a New Testament scholar as there is today. He's at Cambridge University. His name is Richard Baucom. It's called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. And this book was just hugely influential. He's got some material there on early memory. That's the opposite of what Bart Ehrman is getting ready to say. Um, and it, but this is, the way, this is the way I would kind of distill it and answer it. Um, I would answer it like this. We may, and we do, forget all kinds of periphery things. You know, I was at that concert with you in 1963. No, you weren't. Yes, I was. I have a memory of it. Yeah, well, your memory is my memory because I described it to you, but you weren't there, I'm telling you. And then I talked to a bunch of people, and they all say, no, you weren't there. Remember, you couldn't go. All right. And I go, why is that memory in my mind? All right. So that we, we all have stories like that. But here's the key. The more important something is, the, the closer something is to our heart. And, and throughout our life, it would be things like this. The, uh, the deaths of our parents. If one of us lost a sibling or a child, we would remember those things. Our marriage, the birth of our children, um, the, the day we came to Christ. There are certain events that we would remember above all others. And if the center of Christianity, as per our earlier question, if the, 
center of Christianity is the gospel. And the center of the gospel is the resurrection. These men and women who saw Jesus would, those memories would be closer to their heart than anything they could imagine. Because for them, I mean, this is how their preaching goes, that event is what secured heaven for them. It is yeah. the key that gets them through the doors of the kingdom. Yes, they they committed their life to Christ, and it was based on the fact that they know he was dead, and later they were positive that they saw him. All right, the, the, the more central something is, the more likely we are to remember it. Okay, now that's just one person. But in the early church, there's a collective memory, and that's really important, too. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 11, Paul says, he's talking about the apostles as a whole and their appearances, and he says, whether it is I or they, so we teach, and so you believe. And in the next few verses, he says, we, I think three times, he says, we teach this, we teach that, we teach this. The we is Paul plus the original apostles. And if if that's their memory, and they're repeating about these appearances, then that is on a lot more solid ground than whether I went to a concert with you in 1963. Um, you, you know, so that would be that would be right there in the middle. And I think the more we build a case, and notice two of my three evidences that I use when you ask me the question of three, mm-hmm. I used early and eyewitnesses, early events, eyewitness events. And Bart Ehrman tries his hardest on that book to do away with this. But the group appearances of Jesus are extremely important. The fact that he appeared to two or more people on several occasions, those shared memories are, you'd have to think everybody was deluded. And that's, that is highly, highly, highly unlikely. So I, I just think with apologetics today, we are on stronger grounds than we've ever been before, and we have stronger evidence for the center of our faith than we've ever had before. Talking about that again, thank you, because when you came into this field, that wasn't necessarily the case on this topic. So thank you for a career well-invested, a life well-lived. I'm just so thankful for all you've done, Dr. Habermas. Well, you're very kind. Thank you. But I tell people who ask me how this happened, I'll say, well, it was very selfish. (laughs) I started very selfishly. I went through 10 years of doubt. And a lot of my friends were worried about me because uh, at one point I was I was an adult, and actually I already had my Ph.D., so I'd already been through the ropes. And uh, there was a time when I thought that I may have already um, uh, left the faith in a way. I was very enamored with Buddhism. I I've, this this is not like some kind of revelation. I've told the story many yeah. many times, but. Um, I was, uh, I had doubts. And when people would come to me and say, well, hey, check this out, check that out, check out the reliability of Scripture, check out prophecy, check out uh, archaeology, check out creation, uh, you know, and keep your faith. Well, I started studying each of these topics. I thought, yeah, very interesting. Christianity has a lot, but nothing to really seal the deal. And I happened on the resurrection, and I thought, wow, this is special special in the world religions, special everywhere. And if uh, if Jesus has been raised from the dead, 
then yes, I think that is sufficient for my faith. And so it started me on a lifelong search for evidence of the resurrection. But it, for years and years, it was nothing more than a way to answer my own questions. I didn't have speaking engagements, so I wasn't doing this to go out and talk. Uh, it was just for me, for private evidence for me. So uh, uh, maybe the Lord was grooming me for something, I don't know. But, guys, I'll, t- I'll tell you, I am in the middle. In fact, I'm sitting at the table where I, my, my study where I do this work. Uh, I am writing right now, uh, by God's grace, if he allows me to live long enough to finish this, uh, I am writing a, uh, a magnum opus, three volumes, three huge volumes on the resurrection of Jesus. And my estimate is that it's going to come out at about 3,000 to 3,500 pages. Wow. I'd say the vast majority of it, 80%, 70% of it, I've never said before. And in 20 books, uh, out of my 40 books, 20 are in the resurrection. All right, I've not said most of it in anything I've done. But the crazy thing is, Nobody said this. I mean, nobody writes on these little obscure things that I'm choosing in these books. And I'm doing it for one purpose. I frankly don't care if copies of this book sell or not. (laughs) I'm doing it to leave it on a shelf, so to speak, three volumes for the church. They don't have to buy copies, but I want them to know where they can go if somebody questions the resurrection, they just have to know where to put their hands on this. And uh, there's a—I haven't signed a contract, but there's a company that wants to bring out these three volumes as reference tools. And uh, you know how how you talk about reference. You know, there's a part in the library that you can't check out the books, but you can go there and look. <laughs> yeah. I, I just, I just want people to know that there are good answers to these things, and I'm, I'm excited. My whole life, the resurrection's been the foundation for what I believe, and if it helps others, then I'm, I'm absolutely thrilled. We are too. We're so thankful, and, and we'll be buying the book. <laughs> we'll be buying the volumes. Well, so. thanks. I, I had a guy write to me, and he said, "Let me know when these things are ready to come out, so I can take out a second mortgage on the house." <laughs> <laughs> If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The God Solution. You can find out more about The God Solution at godsolutionshow.com. We're interviewing Dr. Gary Habermas, world-renowned expert on the evidence for the resurrection. So the last question on the resurrection, I have a couple other questions on the afterlife in general, if we want to call it that. But last time I talked to you a couple years ago, you said that scholars now believe and kind of have consensus that Jesus predicted his own death. Of course, as Christians, we believe this, but what's the significance of secular scholars starting to buy into this as well? Well, I think it's important on a number of um, uh, levels. Mike Lacona, good good buddy and former student of mine, maybe has written the singular most informational little piece. Uh, he published it in the Journal for the for the uh, study of historical Jesus uh, just a few years ago. And it was um, six, I believe, six reasons to believe that Jesus predicted his death and his exaltation slash resurrection. He, he predicted either his exaltation, as uh, Isaiah 52.13 talks about the servant of God will be exalted. So either a prediction of a death and or uh, exaltation and or resurrection. And 
critics are coming around on this. Yeah, they're going to they're going to allow the death of Jesus to to be that's going to be conceded first because they're going to say, well, look, anybody, you don't have to be very smart to know that uh, the Romans hate you, the Jewish leaders hate you, uh, for different reasons. And uh, you could probably guess that in a world where there's martyrs for Messiah-type figures, you're probably going to be a martyr. So that's the way they'll reason. But in several places, for example, the, Go- the Gospel of Mark Jesus predicts his resurrection in chapters 8, 9, 10, and 14 of uh, Mark, and at least one other time. So that's, that's five predictions. The reason this is important is that, and, and by the way, it's establishable by critical rules. These same rules that I pointed to earlier, which make critics uh, trust certain verses, not others. Um, it's important because if Jesus predicted his death and resurrection, that means it was a plan. And if there's a plan, that means he knew it ahead of time. And if he knew it ahead of time, that's what a prediction is. If he knew it ahead of time, he said, I've received this from my father. So if, if there's a plan and he knows it, and he said the, it's the father's plan, he shared it with me. I'm telling you what's going to happen. This is what we call... Christian theism, or the Christian worldview, and the prophecy makes the resurrection, it ensures that the resurrection is not some freak event of nature, some crazy thing that we didn't expect, you know, it's the, uh, uh, you know, some, the, the New York Mets winning the World Series in 1969 when they weren't supposed to win it, grossly uh, underdogs. Um, the world is full of things like that that happen. How do you know the resurrection wasn't some crazy thing that wasn't supposed to happen that could just as easily have happened to a street person as it does to happen to Jesus? Well, one of the reasons we know is that when he predicted the future of the resurrection, that means it's a planned event. And as a planned event, it's part of a, of a I hate to call it a scheme, but it's, it's part of a worldview vision that is now orderly, that Jesus claimed involved the God of the universe, his Father. Uh, so it ties all of Christianity together. So it's extremely important. The fact that critics are coming around to it, I think that's fantastic. We'd like to take a little turn here and talk about near-death experiences. What can we learn from these near-death experiences? What maybe should we not take away from these experiences? <laughs> that, that's a great question. Um, there's, there's two sides of the issue in my book that are the most important. Um, the first one is, do they really happen, or are they figments of people's imagination? And, of course, they've been around for literally thousands of years. I mean, uh, we have them reported regularly in the ancient world. Plato, uh, you know, um, re- you know, hundreds of years before Jesus, Plato reports a near-death experience. And... I mean, there are others. We, we can get near-death experiences or near-death-like experiences in the Bible. So they're very common. The question is, are they dreams or some sort of subjective phenomena or if you probe somewhere in your brain where your brain just produces these images, or do they really occur? And so the first question is one of evidence. Do we have evidence for NDEs? And I think, uh, the, for me, NDEs is the second 
subject behind the resurrection. After the resurrection, the second subject I spent the most time studying. I've been studying them since 1972. And and uh, I'm also a reviewer for the Journal of Near-Death Studies, which is a secular peer-reviewed journal. So um, I see some of the new stuff that's coming out. And there's some evidence. There's some incredible evidence. Near-death experiences have been written up in over 20 different medical journals which means they're getting some serious attention. Now, on the other hand, anymore, because a lot of people have been writing on the evidence, thankfully it's finally coming to light, the, the evidence. Um, but the second one is I get an incredible amount of letters from people who say, yeah, but I'm really uneasy with this stuff. And the reason I'm uneasy with it is because we have too many people coming back saying things that are not in keeping with Scripture. So, you know, and they'll ask me, uh, this friend of mine's an atheist, and he had a near-death experience. And he came back and he said, wow, I didn't believe in life after death, but now I do. But I met Jesus, or I met an angel, and they didn't look at me and call me a loser. They looked at me and said I was deeply loved, and someday I would be coming back and spending eternity in heaven. What do you do with that? And I'm thinking, I don't know what I do with that. What, what do I think about an atheist who says he's been, you know, accepted to go to heaven, or or a Hindu, or a Buddhist, or you know, other ones? And there's there, or somebody will come back and say, Yeah, I got to look over the other side. And they said I'll be there someday. But I'm just telling you something. There's no judgment. There's no judgment here. Yeah. All right, so. The second category is, what about near-death testimonies that seem to dispute Christianity? And those are the two issues, and there's, you know, you have to handle them each differently. On the first score, it's, do we really have evidence? And, you know, one, one publication that came out a few years ago lists 100 evidential NDEs. So there's clear reason. I've been keeping out my own list since 72, and I've got about 120. Now, some of my cases are some of those cases, but when you subtract the ones uh, that aren't, between our two lists, um, we've got 150 or 160 evidential cases. So it's kind of hard to say these things don't happen. So now I've been trying to spend my time on questions regarding uh, what do we do when the data seem to be true, but now the data seem to be contrary to the New Testament. And it's not as hard a question as it might seem. I think you do a really good job of distinguishing there between what's evidence for supernaturalism versus metaphysical naturalism, i.e. Right. there is life after death, and what we build theology and doctrine around. Of course, we go to God's word for doctrine, and we never go to experience. Well, I hope you got a lot out of the show. Again, this was the second part of the interview with Dr. Gary Habermas. You can get this show at GodSolutionShow.com under past shows. Tune back in next week for the third and final part of the interview with Dr. Habermas. It'll be incredible to celebrate Easter with Habermas talking about the resurrection and the evidence for the resurrection. If you don't yet have a relationship with Jesus Christ, I would implore you to put your faith and your trust in him as Savior and Lord right now to verbalize that through prayer, saying, Jesus, I believe that you are who you say you are, that you died on the cross for my sins and rose again to give me new life. Please come into my life. Please be my Savior and my Lord. 
Please make me the kind of person that you want me to be. The Bible says that if you've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that you can look forward to an eternity with him in heaven and a life of meaning and purpose here on this planet. I hope that you'll take that step if you haven't. And if you have taken that step already, I encourage you to share the good news that you found in Christ with your friends. It's Easter. Lots of different people around you are thinking about Christ's claims and the significance of this holiday right now. There is so much that you can do to share your faith with your friends, especially this time of year. Make a list right now of friends that you could invite to church for Easter next week. Definitely be strategic and forward-thinking about making the most of this incredible opportunity. Of course, you should invite your friends to listen to the God Solution Show. Tune them in to the show next week for the third part of the interview with Dr. Habermas or send them to godsolutionshow.com to get these interviews and others that we've done on this topic. Definitely go to godsolutionshow.com and find out more about the ministry that we're doing. Maybe even support the ministry that we're doing and help expand this ministry and keep it on the air. And while you're there, definitely use the contact form to get in touch with us and tell us what you think about the show, maybe what you'd like to hear in the future, things like that. Well, I'm so glad that you're listening every week. I encourage you to keep listening. And definitely, like I always say, an open mind, honest heart, humble disposition, and diligent search always lead to Jesus. Tune back in next week for the third part of the interview with Dr. Gary Habermas, and we'll talk to you then. You've been listening to The God Solution with Nate Herbst. We hope that you were encouraged by what you heard today and are better equipped to share Christ this week. You can get the audio from today's broadcast and all the past God Solution shows at godsolutionshow.com. Thanks for listening and being a part of The God Solution.